The Animal Welfare Junction is part of the Keep It Humane podcast network. Visit keepithumane.com forward slash podcast network to find us and our amazing animal welfare podcast partners. and welcome to the Animal Welfare Junction. This is your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. Today's special guest is Alicia Kennedy, a veterinarian coming all the way from Australia to talk to us about a very important topic, which is veterinary social work. So thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here with us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So can you first let people know about your background, your education, and kind of what led you to where you, where you are today? Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good question. A big question. So yeah, I'm much older than you. I've been around, I've been a vet for, I think it's over 35 years now. So I've grown up in um, Australia and graduated from Murdoch University in 1986 um, and stepped straight into, uh, I was actually in mixed practice for a while, but primarily companion animals over the years. And it was even in those early days I identified that um, my great love as a vet was less about cutting things. I never sort of was drawn to surgery and dentistry and that side of um, practice. I really enjoyed the connections that I was creating with my clients, particularly elderly clients, and I carved out a uh, my my interest was around the human animal bond so it was even back in the early days that I recognized that people share a, this magic relationship with their pets and the difference that animals can make in humans lives and formed special connections with some of my elderly clients and started to see the challenges that they face as life goes through its phases to keep their uh, pets healthy and well and together with them. Uh, so that was a long time ago. And in the decades since, I've done a lot of other things apart from being a vet. So a big chapter of my life has been motherhood and rearing three beautiful girls who are now in their 20s and roaming the world somewhere um I have one daughter still at home but the other two are in the UK um and then I've also had a very significant part of my life working with the Jane Goodall Institute so I met Jane Goodall uh in the early 2000s uh when we were actually living in China that's a whole other story uh but I I had a big chapter of being a volunteer with the Jane Goodall Institute and establishing a chapter of the Jane Goodall Institute in Australia. And I think everything, every experience that we has leads us to where we are today. Uh, but I started to understand the challenges in the not-for-profit world, um, in, in the charity world, um, and started to really think and consider about how we could do vet practice differently that was um, 
community-centred and accessible to all people. The, the original intention with Cherished Pets was to create a veterinary service that was dedicated to supporting pets of older people because that's where I'd found my passion in practice was uh, supporting elderly people with their pets. And I recognised that in order for elderly people to keep their pets healthy and well and together with them, we would need a more community-focused approach to care. There was a gap in the system. Um, a good, who are, who are your listeners for your podcast? Is it broad community? Yeah, it's a broad community. So we reach out to both the community in general, but then animal control officers, rescue individuals, rescuers, shelters, uh, veterinarians, people in the veterinary community. So we try to make our content so that it can reach as many people involved in animal care and human care as possible. Yeah, great. So um, that's good because I spent, like I see the community as a whole and we all have a role to play in there. And that's definitely one of the teachings from my experience with the Jane Goodall Institute is the role that we all play in, in the bigger picture. I'm a very curious person. I'm a great one to ask questions about how can we do things better. So I started to ask the question to myself and then more broadly, what do we need to do as a community to support the companion animals of our elderly people who are often going through life transitions and are often isolated to help them keep their pets healthy and well and together with them. And you'll find I repeat that those words a lot because that's that's kind of the objective of our service is to keep pets healthy and well and together with their humans. And I knew from the beginning that to provide the, the service that I was envisioning that it wouldn't be, uh, people wouldn't be able to pay for the whole service. And so that's when the idea of having volu a volunteer program came into it. So I'm imagining if you had a veterinary service that supports pets of elderly people and then you bring volunteers in there to provide some additional assistance, it becomes accessible. So my, my thinking back in those days were the seed of cherished pets and over the years, we've evolved with the how we deliver our service, which is something that we'll talk more about in this um, podcast. But the purpose has actually remained the same from the beginning. So my purpose is very clear, and that's to enable the benefits of healthy companion pets and a thriving human-animal bond to be accessible to all people. Um, my focus as a vet, as it evolved through my career, has been the role of the human-animal bond in human health and well-being, and then the way it impacts on animal welfare, which we'll be able to explore more in this uh, interview. That's great what you have brought up because, you know, over time, I've always heard individuals in veterinary field, animal rescue field, that say. I'm into veterinary medicine, I'm into animals because I don't like people. And people are an extremely important part of the equation. So we cannot have the animals without the people or the people without the animals. So it doesn't matter which way you you fall. You kind of have to understand that bond, the, the importance of it. 
uh, and especially in underserved communities and individuals at risk, like the like I used to mention, the elderly. Also, we think about people with disabilities or individuals with mental health problems. And I know that I saw research recently about how the ownership of a pet can decrease health and mental health risks. Like people with animals have a lower risk of obesity, lower risk of heart disease, lower risk of depression. So how does the work that you do revolve around that one health approach to veterinary care? It revolves around the human-animal bond and how we support the human-animal bond. So exactly what you were just saying, like I feel like we are peas in a pot. (laughs) Gee, it's just, um, yeah, it's incredible the way your view of the world is very uh, similar to mine. And, you know, I was talking earlier about our origin was to create a service supporting pets of the elderly. It very rapidly evolved into much more than that. And everything that I've done has been with community at heart and very much integrating a multidisciplinary approach. So um, I, through the human-animal bond, so I describe myself as a social-hearted vet. And what I mean by being a social-hearted vet is that I care as much about the people as I do the animal. So my it's essentially I'm a human-animal bond vet. And when I approach my work as a vet in the consulting room scenario, I'm not just thinking about the pet, I'm thinking about the human behind the pet. Now, the, the pet is centre of everything. We are all there together. And, I, and you'll hear me talk more about the team around the pet. So say the pet is called Sparky. We talk about Team Sparky. And we talk about the human. So you've got the animal is, is the for the veterinary health care. And then the human is uh, the other part of this. They're one unit. And I'm, I've still yet to find a sexier word than unit because it's not a very sexy word, but essentially I I treat them as one. And so in building a plan and making recommendations as a veterinarian to maintain the health and wellbeing of that pet, we need to consider the capability of the human. So this is going somewhere, so stick with me. So I started to think about capacity and capability of that human to deliver on the plan. So a very simple example of that is prescribing ear medication to an elderly person who's quite frail, who's not got the capacity or the capability to administer that medication. So you're not gonna have compliance with your recommendations for that pet. Um, And once I started recognizing the capability um, piece, That's what led us into supporting pets of people who are experiencing vulnerability. So in in our work at Cherished Pets, we, through our social service, we support five key groups. Um, So it is the elderly, which was our sort of where we started. We very rapidly progressed into supporting people living with a disability through creating a home pet care assistance service. And we have our volunteer program who we match with our um, participants. So the home care assistance program 
is exactly what it sounds like. It's giving people assistance to keep their pets healthy and well. And it it can be matching volunteers for dog walking, for uh, trans, transfer and transport of pets. One of the big ones is respite care of pets. Now, I deliberately use, we've defined our own terms. We don't talk about foster care of pets. We talk about respite pet care because we're actually, if you think about foster care, you're talking about looking after pets, animals that don't have a human, whereas respite pet care is um, looking after someone else's pet while they're not able to look after their pet. And it's got a whole, it's a whole new sort of set of complexity looking after other people's pets. Um, Our home care assistance program, we also have a community vet nurse. So we introduced that role eight years ago. So Glenda was our original community vet nurse who's uh, transitioning to retirement. So she's in her 60s. It's a beautiful role because she does monthly visits at a minimum, sometimes more often, sometimes not that often, to check in that the maintenance of the pet is um, in hand. So things like, you know, nail trims and checking uh, bottoms that they're not getting daggy and, and you know, cleaning up around the face, uh, helping with application of administering medication, monitoring weight. So that's one of our big areas is supporting uh, nutrition and weight management programs. We all know that a lot of these animals that are sort of housebound in lots of ways have uh, get overfed and can get obese we see that a lot and yeah so it it was designed to be a community-centered wraparound service to keep everyone healthy and happy and together once we started we then we we're in a regional community in uh victoria in australia so about an hour and a half out of melbourne And we found that we started getting requests for crisis care of pets through domestic violence agencies and homelessness and mental health. And how we've evolved from seven years ago to where we are today is we are a regular private veterinary practice. We run a GP clinic in our local town. We run a dedicated end-of-life home service, which was actually the original private service that I started um, because my thinking back then was the private service will enable me to support the social service. And we established our charity, Cherish Pets Foundation, as an independent charity. It's got tax deductibility status so that we could run a volunteer program and raise money for what we call subsidy funding when, when there's a gap. As we've evolved and we've uh, had requests in the crisis care space, I started to lead that conversation in in the community because I recognised that in our region there wasn't a formal response plan for what do we do with pets when people are in crisis. I'm a great connector and I love getting out there and talking to people and and I um, was asking the question and nobody was giving me the answer that I felt was satisfactory so in 
2017, we actually, and again in 2018, we hosted a community conversation and we brought together people in the domestic violence sector. So uh, the domestic violence agencies, the local shelter, local vets, the police, the animal management team from the local uh, council, uh, cherished pets, a couple of the foster groups. And I gathered them all together into this room and we got a lovely uh, lady to facilitate it just to start to look at how a pets in crisis program might look in our region. Fast forward to 22, 23, it is now our second social service stream as a um, funded uh, dedicated service, which is to provide care of pets when people are in crisis. And that's not just domestic violence. We provide our service to, we get referrals from domestic violence agencies, um, but also mental health crisis. And at the moment, we were talking about this yesterday, that that's kind of the biggest area of referrals at the moment. So when we think about the human-animal bond, it is such a powerful force in our community and it is a key driver of human health and well-being and it is a key driver of animal welfare. And this is why I've loved connecting with you to deepen this conversation because by having a human-animal bond lens to my work as a vet, it's opened up my sort of thinking, but my my connections to the broader community and, and other, um, you know, we'll talk about social work, but the health professionals, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to health professionals and people in aged care, mental health, saying, if you have a client with a pet and you're not factoring that animal into your care plans for that client, you're not serving the best interest of your client because we know in vet practice, and particularly with the work that you do, that people will put their animals first, sometimes to the detriment of themselves. And what we've tried to, what we're trying to do with our service is build that bridge to support both. So it's animal welfare and animal health and well-being, and it's human health and well-being. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that is that is exactly, you know, how I see it is that we have to, we're here to take care of the animals as veterinarians, but we have to take care of the people taking care of those animals so that they can take care of them better. Right. Uh, I really like the idea that you just said as far as having the volunteers helping people with things that we don't even think about, like medicating a, a dog or a cat, like just taking them for a walk. Because a big error that a lot of us make is making assumptions about what the clients can do or cannot do. And then we become judgmental about the care that they're willing to offer or not without really taking into consideration their ability to do it. One example that I could say would be like a diabetic cat where you have somebody bringing in the cat, perhaps an elderly couple brings in their cat, the cat is diabetic, and then yeah, we can do all this blood work, we can do insulin, we can do all these things. And then the person says, I'm unable to inject the cat, I'm unable to provide the care that they need. And in some cases, unfortunately, 
the cat ends up being euthanized and there's a judgment and a feeling of being judged by the owner. I'm not a good owner because I'm unable to offer what my cat needs. And we have to be very conscious about what, how we can meet the owner where they're at to provide that care. And then also the expense of it all, because maybe it is somebody that is able, capable physically to inject this cat but they cannot spend the money in doing the testing, in doing the, uh, in doing the injections, in getting the insulin. So we have to be very careful about what, how we present treatment options and uh, diagnostics options, so that we're not looking down at people, so we're not making them feel alienated or judged. Um, and that way, also, it I think it would bring a trust. So that they're more likely to tell you when there's a problem rather than hide it because they're concerned about how you're going to react to it. Yeah, like it's like, wow, you are so beautiful and you are so naturally a social hearted vet. And, you know, I have, we'll, we'll start talking about vet social work very soon. And people have said to me, I'm more of a social worker in some I've got that social heart. Um, I've, you know, as a vet, I've I often will say I'm not a real vet because I don't cut things and do all that fancy tech stuff. But I've, as I'm getting older, it's like no, well, I actually play a valuable role in the veterinary industry because of exactly what you were just saying. Um, and I just want to pick up a couple of pieces of that you talked about being judgmental, and so one of the beauties of social hearted vet practice and having vet social workers that lens of care is that you do meet people where they're at and it's not judgmental and you approach things you approach your uh, care and and your work with kindness and compassion and if we're not considering the capability of humans to deliver on the care we're failing everyone when we talk about capability we talk about physical capability financial capability and that psychological emotional capability and it plays out differently in in different scenarios but you've reminded me of a, a very recent case when you were talking about the diabetic patient and also because I do end of life um, the capability of people impacts decisions around end of life too. So this was a um, diabetic dog who I euthanized just yesterday. So it's really fresh in my mind, but it was a very old dog. I think she was 14 and they were struggling to, so the, the, she'd been diagnosed with diabetes and they were just in the early first month of managing it. Um, but the, it's an elderly couple. They're an elderly couple and he's just recently had uh, back surgery and the stress in this household around managing and looking after this dog plus the cost of it led to a, a very honest and open conversation about what was going to be best in the long term and we made the decision to euthanize the dog. She had other issues too. So it wasn't just diabetes. Um, 
and she was also very anxious herself. So this concept of best, we, we have a saying in our practice that sometimes best practice and gold standard care are not the same thing. And I think the skill in uh, for vet for veterinary teams is to be thinking about through a human animal bond lens, what is the best for all parties? Because if people don't have the commitment and the capacity to provide that level of care that's required to, I mean, managing a diabetic patient is very challenging for a lot of people, let alone people that are facing other issues, including financial ones that, um, everyone ends up suffering in primarily the patient too does that make sense yeah absolutely and in and in the suffering we also have to think about how our inability to take care of our pets properly especially for the younger veterinarians how all of that and not just to the veterinarians for, but for the staff in general how that inability to provide proper care leads to compassion fatigue and leads to depression uh, for the veterinary team because we go into into this field to help and then somebody brings us a pet that has a problem that is potentially treatable but we are unable to treat it and we see patients that have to be euthanized or that do not receive proper care because the owner is unable to provide it and i think that all of those hardships uh, a lot of a lot of veterinarians and a lot of veterinary staff take that very personally and that leads to, to depression and, and problems within the veterinary staff. Absolutely. And, and you know, they, they're a big, um, so the Australian Veterinary Association has committed a lot of resources to the mental health crisis in the veterinary profession. And I think it was in 21 now they did a, a national survey and a lot of vets participated. Um, and when you when you look at the the statistics of what is driving the burnout and the compassion fatigue and people not wanting to stay in the profession, a lot of the time it is around the human element of practice. So we talk about complex human elements. So, you know, your regular, most of our clients are wonderful and easy to work with. But once we start talking about people experiencing vul vulnerability, particularly around mental health, um, you as a veterinarian or, and actually I talk about veterinary teams because a lot of this um, lands in the lap of the receptionists and the nurses too. So when you're dealing with complex human elements, it really adds to the moral stress and the emotional burden of the work that we do. And this is where the veterinary social worker role fits so beautifully in the veterinary industry and in our community by having, and we'll talk more about veterinary social workers, but, but that they're professional people who are skilled and trained in managing the human elements. You mentioned that earlier in our conversation. It's by having that holistic approach to the human-animal bond and considering uh, multidisciplinary integrated care that you can build support for veterinary teams and better our out outcomes in delivering the care to the patient. Yeah, our 
I am really super lucky that most of my staff has been with me for many years. So my managers have been with me for over 10 years. My technicians have been, the majority of my technicians have been with me for over 10 years. And I would love to say that it's because I'm just this awesome boss, but I am very difficult to work with or to work for. But I think that what it comes down to is that they don't have that problem with dealing with individuals that are constantly saying no, that are constantly saying, I cannot, that the, the animals that come to see us need our, need our service, need our help, and then they're able to provide that help. And they're able to help the patient. And in some cases, when the individual is not able to afford something, we try to figure out ways for them to be able to do it. And again, non-judgmental way. So I like to think that my staff has been with me for so long, first, because they're all extremely kind-hearted people that want to help the community and want to help animals. But at the end of the day, they can go home after a really long, hard day of work, knowing that what they did had meaning and it was appreciated. So they have the, the physical tiredness, but they don't have as much of that mental tiredness that comes with not being able to provide proper care for the animals and for the people that are caring for them. We have a very similar um, approach to care here through our model. So I think what you just said then, I want to talk about accessible, affordable care mm -hmm. and the role of um, our care team in that process because I often, I mean, I, I admire greatly uh, real vets who, I've said that in inverted commas, uh -huh. you know, real vets who work in emergency centres and, you know, the, the very intense side of veterinary practice. I, I honestly don't know how they do it. It's incredible work that they do and coming through the pandemic, just so stressful. So I salute all the vets that work in that space. And I often think about, and I've witnessed it myself actually, because I was I was at our local emergency with my own uh, animal at one point and witnessed some scenarios unfold, you know, while I was in the waiting room and the <clears throat> the pressure and the stress that's playing out in those moments when people are in crisis because their pets are in some sort of crisis is pretty intense. And the average veterinarian is not prepared to deal with the humans in in that scenario and I think that's where veterinary social workers play such a vital role in being providing a buffer so you know if if you're a if you're a veterinarian and and you've got an intense situation and the human elements are exacerbating the the stress you can bring in the vet social worker and it becomes a an internal and then an external referral pathway and a resource for support to you and support to that human to navigate what their options are. So we've created our own, I mean, I, I call it like our own little ecosystem of care because when I started Cherish Pets, we started a private service. We wanted to build this social service we set up our charity so that we could have an independent stream of funding to which has evolved into bridging the gap when people can't afford um, full service. And 
I'll mention here too. I mean, Cherish Pets is a, a certified B Corporation. I don't have you heard of B Corp? I have not. What is that? So B Corporation is a global accreditation for ethical business practice. So it's not in the vet community, it's in the broader business community. And so B stands for benefit. And the movement started in, in the United States. Um, to become B Corp certified, your business undergoes a rigorous assessment across five pillars of business. So it's not just about profit. It's the accreditation that ticks the profit planet and people box. So you have to demonstrate that you're being environmentally conscious and looking at sustainability, but you're being socially conscious and you've got that um, social responsibility happening and your people and culture internally with uh, how you look after your own people, which sounds like you should look at Peacock from what you were just telling me. <laughs> Because I reckon, yeah, you are a natural and we are the world's first certified B Corp vet practice, which is something that we take, we're very proud of. And as part of demonstrating our social commitment, because it's a it's an assessment process that you get scored, you literally get points, um, <laughs> is the fact that we dedicate a lot of our resources and in our start you know in the first few years personally I I didn't take a salary so that we could do more in developing this social service while we built up the charity to create this self-sustaining funding model because everyone always says well where does the funding come from now we provide the social service at the not-for-profit rate to eligible people so our organisation structure is the private practice is a regular vet practice, so regular fees. Um, our end-of-life service is our signature service, and so we, we, you know, that's a really beautiful service that we charge what we should for through the, from the beginning with the quality of life assessment through the euthanasia phase and also the aftercare. But the social service is our social commitment and when we, it's designed that, nobody profits from that because I don't believe that we should um, but even with the discount you would probably appreciate that a lot of people I know what how bad it is in Australia at the moment a lot of people are still struggling to access affordable vet care and so the the concept of having funding packages through the charity developed the role of the charity is to fill that bucket of money which is easier said than done it all sounds very lovely on a podcast but it's actually really really hard work and making this service uh sustainable and scalable is is where I spend a lot of my time um because we know that the model is working on a very small scale but to that it's a very complex model our model and there's lots of pieces to it and so to replicate that is not easy and will 100% require <clears throat> a whole of community response so people hear me talking about you got to put into the bucket and the people that put into the funding bucket are our state government so we got a very exciting grant from the state government in 22 to support the development of our vet social work service and to support um, 
specifically our crisis care service. So that's allowed us to get a lot of uh, traction and development in our vet social work program, but we can't depend on government. So we also, through our private practice, support, you know, we, we provide support into the charity, but it's the majority of private donors into the charity are our private clients. So I mentioned earlier about community engagement is key. The human-animal bond is one of the most popular things on the planet, I think. You only have to look at how social media gifts of dogs and cats go through the roof. People love animals. It's it's one of the few constants in our community. Um, you know, I go into people's homes through our end-of-life service and our social service, but our end-of-life service we offer to everyone, to all pet owners, so it's not just the social service. And I go into the wealthiest homes and homes in, you know, the poorest areas, and I, the full spectrum, very clean, white, tidy houses, they're always washed, to the hoarders' homes. And one of the things that's consistent in our community is the love that we feel for our pets. I think it's one of the few things that is across sectors. You know, we live in we live in a siloed society where it's either aged care or mental health or disability or domestic violence or homelessness. A very typical client profile for cherished pets is an older woman with a background of domestic violence who's facing housing insecurity because of her financial situation very often with mental health issues and more often than not with some chronic illness or a disability so so many people tick all those boxes and you can't just approach care depending on which silo that you fit in and in the middle of that human's life in that woman's life is her cherished pet who is the reason that she gets out of bed every day and when that pet becomes unwell, it's a very stressful scenario. So that takes me back to talking about life in emergency and these stressful scenarios that are playing out. Because if if my child couldn't access the care that it needed and I was turned away because I couldn't afford to pay, stress can escalate very quickly. And that's where abuse can happen, the client abuse. And, you know, when, don't for a minute endorse any level of abuse, but I think having an understanding of what is driving some of those scenarios is what we need to start paying attention to as a profession, but also as a community. You know, we imagine a society without vets think about where well, we talk a lot more now here about the social value of vets and why vets play an intrinsic part in healthy thriving communities so I know I'm jumping around because this is what I do because it's complex but I'm going to go back to my bucket now okay so we we've had some funding from the government our private clients love our social mission and our purpose and what we're doing in community. So they are our best donors into our charity. Then there's philanthropy um, and high net worth individuals and bequests and things like that. We haven't had a bequest yet because we're still quite young, but that's certainly potentially how we can 
contribute to our funding bucket. And then it's the the industry. So the bed industry and companies and, um, you know, I, I have this dream of everyone pitching in and creating this funding scheme where people can um, access funding packages, but through an eligibility process. I think I think we can't go any further in this conversation, G, without talking about vet social work. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, because I I had the opportunity to visit an organization called Interface Housing uh, Housing Network, and part of the sponsor that was at that facility is a group called My Dog Is My Home, and it's a really nice idea because it's basically saying kind of like people say home is where the heart is it's home is where my pet is and they they provide primarily housing assistance for families that are experiencing housing difficulties uh a lot of work with victims of domestic violence individuals that are experiencing homelessness there was a really sad case that this lady came in to tell us her story about how she has three young boys and she had a dog and she had a job and all of a sudden she lost her job could not secure another job one of her children her youngest son was only two years old and she all of a sudden found herself homeless and she is living out of a vehicle with her kids and her dog and then finally secures a place to be able to go in and they tell her she cannot have her dog and at that point, she has to make the decision of, do I have a shelter for my children, especially my two-year-old, or do I keep my dog? And she had to make the heartbreaking decision to put her dog up for adoption. And thankfully, she was able to follow up and her dog was adopted to a good family. So she at least has that knowledge, but she's always going to have that heartbreak that basically in her eyes, she had to give up her one of her kids to help the other three. Uh, this is where this uh, interfaith group came in and helped her secure affordable housing in a place that is pet friendly. So she is able, she still, she has to pay for her rent, but she has a safe place for her and her family. She was able to get a dog, which is very important for her family to have that, that companionship especially for her, for her own mental health, to have that dog, to uh, provide that emotional support. And then they provide social work to help her navigate through all of the difficulties from taking care of the kids to housing to work. So uh, as veterinarians going through veterinary school, they don't teach us how to be social workers. They barely teach us about how to deal with clients. Uh, other than to explain to them diagnosis and, and testing that we want to do. So how does the social work piece work into your practice? Yeah, it's such a, oh, I, I love this question. So I first heard the term veterinary social work used at an international conference before the pandemic. So it's the International Association of Human-Animal Interaction Organisations. I don't know if you're familiar with that organisation. IHO, we call it for short. And they had a conference and Phil Arkow mm -hmm. spoke of it. Now, you're nodding your head yes. because anyone with, interest, yeah, yes. anyone with <laughs> an interest in pets and domestic violence and the link knows Phil's name because he's the global guru. 
and I'm on his mailing list and yeah, incredible work. And I've learned so much by connecting into that network. And in his presentation at this conference, he talked about the University of Tennessee's veterinary social work program. And I didn't even really at that point understand what social work was, although I was connecting with social workers already at that point through our local service. So I knew that they were out there, but I didn't really understand the worldview of a social worker. And I went, I remember going back to my hotel room and, and Googling it and looking up the University of Tennessee program, which is an incredible program and, um, and thinking, oh, wow, that's what we're doing. We're kind of doing a form of veterinary social work. And up until that point, I think people here just thought we were kind and soft-hearted and over-generous and perhaps a bit silly with the work that we were doing. And I re it really started to sort of uh, crystallise the role of the veterinary social worker, but we weren't social workers. We were social-hearted vets and nurses trying to, that were naturally leaning into that work like you do very well, like I can tell you now. You just the language that you use and some of the things that you've said, you, you've already got that social worker leaning um and so then it was complete serendipity this is the best story because our organization has our charity cherish pets foundation and the chair of the charity judy wookie is a social worker by background and she also happens to so she got it i mean the reason that she got involved with cherish pets was she appreciated the role of the human animal bond in human health and well-being because she'd worked with families um, and with children and that separation that you were talking about before where people can't keep their pets with them. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And the system is failing people when that happens. And the same thing happens here. Um, so Judy came, so Judy also uh, supervises social work students from Deakin University, which is a, in our region. So she came to me in 2020 and she said, why don't we, um, how would you feel about having a couple of social work students on placement? And I'm like, yeah. I think I said something else before the year. I'm like, yeah, that, <laughs> sound, that sounds like a heap of fun and really cool. Let's do it. <clears throat> so this was just when the pandemic was happening too. So the first placement was interesting because it was pretty much everyone was in lockdown here. Um, but we're now up to our 13th social work student coming through on placement. And of the 13, five, five of them have ended up getting some form of employment with us, either um, permanent or casual. So our original two social workers, Elise and Esther, came to us for one semester. And in that time, we really focused on our vet social work service as as an independent service and as a as a key role so by the time they got to the end of their placement we couldn't do without them so they were our first two employees and Elise is still with us Esther's moved on so we created an internship for them and then brought them onto the staff onto the team and one of the sayings we have in Cherish Pets is that uh, we're 
building the plane while we're flying it. So it's maybe you relate to that, but we run by the seat of our pants because the the demand for our service has grown while we've still been tr- organising the way we deliver it, which I think is the only way you can start something like this because if you wait for it to be perfect and organised, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You've just got to get in there and you've got to start it. And the best thing that we do is learn by our mistakes. We are constantly reviewing and reflecting. And I love this exchange of wisdom between the social worker's view of the world and and vet's view of the world because there's no right or wrong here. It's just different perspectives. Um, But when you bring the two together, you're creating a human-animal bond-centred service that has so much to offer the society, the community. And so the veterinary social worker role at Cherished Pets is different to the University of Tennessee model and they they all have different but similar similar but different and I think it's because of the way the services have evolved um so the University of Tennessee model um I don't fully understand it because I haven't done the program but it it is centered around social workers within the vet industry which is where we need them we need them supporting vets in busy emergency centres and and um, in the larger practices, there's definitely scope to, you know, if you had a social worker on your team for a year, you would think I can never offer my veterinary service without a social worker on my team. I do not know how people run practices without that vet social worker resource. Um, another big part of what the vet social worker does is address that compassion fatigue um, and moral stress piece within the team through debriefing and supervision and and that intrinsic internal support. The Cherish Pets model, its origin was in the community and it's very much the role of the veterinary social worker in community health and community outreach. And a good example of that is sometimes through the human-animal bond and through pets our service becomes a touch point for people who are not already accessing services. So I think you were talking about that before in the homeless community. This has application across all of the uh, sectors, aged care, disability, mental health, domestic violence and homelessness. But sometimes it is the human-animal bond and the animal that connects people into broader services and the veterinary social work can facilitate that so a good example of that is our work in the community in our home care assistance program with the elderly so we have a reputation now as a veterinary practice that loves and supports elderly people so I don't actually have the statistic because I haven't worked it out but a lot of our clients are over 60 because they come to us because they know that we give them special care and they're thriving and they're independent and they're out there and they're just they're your regular private clients. As life goes through its phases and things start to happen, such as a health event or general ageing and health decline, people start to lose their independence and our practice can refer an elderly client to our care team when we start to think they might need extra assistance So we refer to the care team and then um, they can access the volunteer program and the community vet nurse. Many 
there have been multiple times when we've started to connect to people in their home through the home service and we've recognised that they're losing their independence but they're not yet accessing other supports. They don't even know that they exist yet. And so our vet social workers play that really critical, there's a word for it and I can't remember what it is, but it's... um, they play that role in connecting them to the other resources in a kind and compassionate and non-judgmental way. So it's a gateway service. So the, you know, imagine the bigger picture where the human animal bond is and a service like ours and like yours, because you're already doing this. You just don't yet have a social worker on your team, but I can tell you now you're like me five years ago with what you're doing. And, and I think your vision is very, your heart and your intention and your purpose is very aligned and your vision is very similar um, that the human animal bond is critical in a healthy thriving community because it is how people feel comfortable to come and they'll come to the vet to get care for their animal before they'll go to the doctor to get care for themselves or before they'll access other services that are out there is that kind of resonating yeah, absolutely. Because we have clients that experience hunger because they want to make sure that their cats or their dogs are fed and they don't feed themselves or they don't eat as much as they could or they don't go to the doctor because it's expensive to go to the doctor and they have things to do or or bills to pay. Or even they won't go to the doctor because they don't have anybody to take care of their dog or cat while they're at the doctor if they get hospitalized. It is absolutely one of the driving experiences for me setting up Cherished Pets was I had more than one client who, you know, I mentioned earlier I loved my older clients. I would build that connection and that relationship with them and get to know them and they would tell me as their vet that they were healthy, unwell and unwell and they weren't going to tell their doctor and they weren't going to tell their family because they were worried about what's going to happen to the dog and I'm like oh okay that's not okay what do we need to do as a community to provide a service that looks after the pet while they go and get themselves healthy and well and bring them back together again and of course life happens and we have cases like a a recent crisis care case I, I like bringing it back to a story every now and then but we had this this is a really good story to share actually because we're probably running out of time but um her name was Dolly and she came through the crisis service that's been funded by the government for this year because her elderly owner had a health event and got whisked off to hospital so it was a crisis admission into hospital so the social worker at the hospital contacted us and we were able to bring Dolly into our care but when she arrived it was very confronting so this is the animal welfare piece that she had a huge ulcerated tumor Uh, it was a mammary tumor I think in her groin like in on her abdomen that was ulcerated she was hadn't been groomed she was all matted and knotted and you look at a photo of her and I share this photo in our presentations and you can very easily jump to the conclusion that she's been um, that it's cruelty and she's been neglected and I often I often say that 
it's not intentional cruelty. It's unintentional neglect from a lack of capacity. And often these pets are loved more than anything in the world, as was Dolly by her human, who had been quoted $2,000 to have the surgery done and he was putting aside $40 a fortnight or something. So he had $400 in his bank account reserved for Dolly's surgery. Well, she was going to die before he could afford to pay for it. And so in a way it was a blessing for Dolly that she came in for the crisis care, but with the package funding that we had, we were able to get her health sorted. Um, and then long story short, he actually never went home again. His health declined and he was terminally ill. And so we also do a rehoming when these pets come into our care, when, when people have, permanent loss of capacity to care for their pets and as it turns out our community vet nurse Glenda bonded greatly with this little dog so this little dog is still living with her today but he got to see Dolly a week before he died and she'd been clipped and groomed and was as pretty as anything and she'd had her surgery and the wound had healed so the peace of mind that he had um, on his journey was that Dolly was going to be loved and looked after beyond him. Um, and that's really powerful stuff. That is, yeah, that is an amazing story because it, I mean, it brings everything together, right? Like the dog is, is experiencing a better quality of life. The owner is able to rest peacefully knowing that not having that worry that the pet is suffering or that it's not taken care of. Uh, and yeah, I think that there is a veterinary social work is of great use, not just for affordable, accessible care, like what we do, but just in general, I think this is an important tool that all veterinarians should be utilizing, especially the emergency practices, especially the, the places, the referral practices, because most of my clients, I'm going to be able to work with them uh, within our means to help them. But when they have that emergency, whether it be bladder stones or a traffic accident, something happens. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in that emergency room with thousands of dollars of expense that was not expected. That is an amazing place for a social worker to come in and help that individual along. And even if the end result is that the pet needs to be euthanized, just helping them throughout that process, because it's just so important. Exactly. And it is, it, it's, um, it just allows everyone to catch in that scenario. It allows everyone to catch their breath, be seen and heard and understood for where I'm at today. And then to navigate what, where the solutions might be, and as you said, even if it does go down the euthanasia path, it's a much gentler kind of process to take people to that point and it takes that pressure off the veterinary team. So the vet, I haven't clarified what the veterinary social worker is. So a veterinary social worker is a, is a social worker who's professionally trained and skilled and has, has that um, training to manage humans people and they've undertaken additional training around the human animal bond 
So it's it's like a social worker that's stepping into this emerging space of the human animal bond. And you can best the way I see a vet social worker in our community is very much the bridge between human health and well-being and animal welfare. Because at the end of the day, by supporting and upholding and addressing the human animal bond, the animal welfare outcomes are significant, as in the case of Dolly. And I've got hundreds of examples where by working with the humans, we're able to improve welfare of the animals. So through our crisis care service, a good majority of them, I wouldn't say the majority, it's probably about 50% of them, come to us in a less than ideal state. And then through our service, we can improve their health and welfare, support the bond, and then look at ongoing support for that human to maintain the welfare of the animal. Now, we haven't tackled some of the curly stuff. So when I talk about our service, it sounds really nice. It's actually really hard work. And too often now we've had to address cases with, you know, an ethical, moral conversation around sometimes what is best for the pet and the human is for them to not stay together when long-term capacity to keep that pet healthy and well is not able to be sustained then surrender is sometimes or euthanasia is the best option for the animal for the animal's welfare they are the really really hard cases and if I didn't have social workers around us to support us through some of those cases I don't know where we'd be but um you know, I was talking about our student placement program and our, our social work team. We we have our Monday morning meeting every week, which is where a lot of these conversations and case discussions play out. And we, it's not a one size fits all solution. It, you, you've got to have that interdisciplinary approach to care. Um, just last week, we had a meeting with the care team of a client who um, is a hoarder and lives in squalor and has got cats and we her cats are everything to her. And we're trying to help them by working with her support workers and our team to create a plan where we can keep them together, keep an eye on the cats for their and, and put boundaries in place, absolutely need boundaries in place in this case. Um, but yeah, keep preserve the bond so that this lady can keep her cats. And that is so so important in hoarding because here in the US, and I don't know if it is the same in Australia, we have a huge problem in that hoarding is not managed properly as a mental health disease. So when there is a hoarding case, the animals are taken away, the individual is told you cannot have any more animals, but nothing is really done to help the mental health portion of that person. And I feel that especially in the in the case of overwhelmed caregiver hoarders, it is so important to have somebody like a social worker, somebody that can work with this person to understand why the animals need to move away, like the excess, so that they can keep a manageable amount. And then what the resources are to properly care for those animals. Because some of these hoarders love those animals way more than some other 
pet owners that we would consider good pet owners do. So we have to take that into consideration. And again, in the uh, understand if it is truly uh, unintentional or if it is intentional, if it is a hoarder that is exploiting or abusing these animals, absolutely, then we need to legally approach that. But these individuals that are really just out-resourced, we need to do so much better as a society. It doesn't matter if you don't like animals, like you care about the person. So then you're taking care of the animals to take care about the person. Also, most people that don't necessarily like animals, I don't feel that they want them harmed or they want them to suffer. They may just not want to live with them or interact with them. But I think in general, we understand the the importance. We just have to kind of act on it and be and be better about it. Yeah, and I think we've run out of time and this is a that's a good note to end on in a way is that the role of animals and the human animal bond so my vision is a society where the human animal bond is valued and recognized for the role the significant role that it plays in healthy and connected individuals and communities and i think this the siloed approach is not going to work in the future system, that um, it's this interdisciplinary bringing, you know, we talked about the team approach to pets, but that case that I just shared around the hoarder, we're all sitting around the table together trying to navigate the solutions rather than saying this is going to fail, you know, like it, it's, and, and you know, having this conversation with the her support workers who one of them was a social worker was so from the heart of recognizing just how important these animals are to her future recovery because she is already in a program for support um and if we ignore the role of those animals we I, I can't remember the words that she used but we will set her progress back if we separate them so how can we look at community-based solutions to keep them together without risking so it's so complex without risking the welfare of the animals so yes we're putting restrictions on numbers and so when I said she was a hoarder she wasn't an animal hoarder she's got four cats I wouldn't say that's hoarding it's not like she's got 40 but she was a hoarder in her home yeah but definitely could see the pattern of she could get she would get more cats if she wanted to so she's got that very clear line now that uh you know in her support plan we'll be monitoring that and she'll be getting the community vet nurse visits and working with her caseworkers and it, it to me it's the only way forward is these these collaborative care plans and sharing of resources and sharing of heads hearts and hands you know in in community level support I'm hopeful that people listening to this episode have gained a lot of information, uh, perhaps even things that they have never, concepts that they have never been exposed to and understand the importance of the human-animal bond and the usefulness of the social workers with the veterinary team. And I know that, you know, I, I am looking forward to looking into ways to incorporate social work students into our veterinary student program 
so that everybody can learn at a, at a young age while still babies in vet school, how to work together to offer better services to the community. And I, again, I hope that the veterinarians and veterinary teams that may be listening to this episode think at least think about it or consider the way that they can involve veterinary social work into the service that they're providing. I think that ultimately it's not just going to help their patients, it's going to help their staff and it's going to help them work better and feel better about what they're doing. So I really appreciate you taking this time to join us and to discuss your experiences. Uh, the work that you're doing is amazing. And I hope to uh, have more conversations in the future with you to develop more ways to, to help the community by helping the animals and the individuals that take care of them. So beautiful. Yeah, I feel like we've just started our conversation. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we can talk until the cows come home. So I would love to stay connected with you and your community, you know, um, cherished pets. And on social media, I'm social hearted vet. And, you know, as we build this community globally, um, connecting and, and follow each other. But I think... It is an exciting shift in the vet industry to see recognition of the vet social worker role as being an upstream solution to the mental health crisis. And then in the local community, the vet social worker role brings relief and support to the service providers. You know, we we get referrals from people who are, the, the health providers who are just like, we don't know what we would do if Cherished Pets wasn't there. So, you know, it's, it's an emerging field and definitely will be part of the landscape of thriving communities into the future. So thank well, you. Uh, thank you so much. And yes, we'll definitely keep in touch. Uh, I follow you very closely on LinkedIn and everything that you do. So thank you for, again, for the work that you're doing. Thank you for taking this time. And to everybody that's listening, hope that you have learned something and thank you for listening and thank you for caring. Thank you.